This is UCD Business Impact, the new podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we will be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Now, on today's Business Impact podcast, we are looking at the world of work and the office indeed. The Whittaker Institute has published figures in recent weeks saying that since COVID-19 started, almost 87% of the Irish workforce is working from home, probably on a platform like Zoom, which I'm on today from my own room here in Dublin. And I'm great, uh, great opportunity to be joined by someone who knows a lot about the world of work. She has researched and taught in this area for many years, and that's Dr. Maeve Houlihan, who's the director of the UCD Lachlan Quinn School of Business and is an expert and leading authority on the world of work and how it has evolved and will evolve in the future. And I'm delighted to have her on today's podcast. Thank you very much, Maeve. Hi, Emma. Delighted to be here. What I wanted to start today's conversation off with was really a look at why does the office exist in the first place? If so many of us are now surviving and being good, productive employees outside of the office, it does immediately prompt that question of why did the office ever come about in the first place? What were the assumptions behind creating what we look at as the modern office? And I've been looking at a bit of the, uh, the history of Frederick Taylor, the old uh, managerial, first management, modern management consultant. And two words that stuck out about him and his views of the office were one, that it was a great way to instruct staff, but the second bit I thought was more interesting in that he thought it was a great way to supervise staff. And to me, immediately, that word has somewhat negative connotations, and I think that leads through to how we view the office even now somewhat negatively. And with COVID-19 happening and transforming that whole view, do you think this whole idea of supervision, one, was that the original reason for the office, and do you think that reason is in any way relevant anymore? I suppose Taylor was talking very much about industrial factory work. And it was, the, I suppose, the era of looking at productivity and how you could begin to move towards, we didn't have the language for it, but, but what became mass production. And, you know, he, was, his, his, he was an extraordinary character. There's been a lot written about him. But yeah, his big proposition was that if you could separate the thinking from the doing, if you could work out the most efficient ways to do things, if you could instruct people and then supervise and manage them, you would have the best quality of work. So you're, you're thinking, well, does that, is that the precursor of the office? And I, I think the office then was the sort of administrative core that wraps around that. But that idea, you know, of separating thinking from doing, it, it's got to be folly, doesn't it? It certainly doesn't sound sensible on the face of it. Um, was it also a way to coordinate? So you had these managers, this kind of core tier of people who assigned the tasks and also allocated the resources that they would come together in one place and, and hold meetings and discuss and coordinate as such. Was that a, a, also one of the things why we have the, the, the office as we do now? Absolutely, because I suppose scaling it out, although first this you know, was focused on the production of units, production of uh, whatever it might be. I mean, his very first study was actually about moving um, pig iron from one place to another. And so it was kind of focused on the ergonomics and the speed and the most effective load size, all that stuff. 
But yeah, that relied on a kind of professional class of administrators or supervisors who would uh, absorb the rule book and then would apply it. And I suppose, you know, very quickly from that, we do have this idea of hierarchies and administration. But to be honest, I do think that probably the office side of things is also about different types of work. You know, very often we'd associate it with the bureaucracies and um, moving paper around, um, working more with words and ideas, maybe then um, moving, you know, lumps of steel from one side of the room to the other. But it's very much the same terrain, the mindset uh, coming out of it. And actually, the kind of most modern version of Taylor's ideas is really, on one hand, maybe the McDonald's world, you know, the world of kind of producing burgers or whatever it is in a very structured, systematic way where you've got predictability, you've got standards that you can control rigorously and rely on, you know, the the type of work that's done and you know wherever you go, you'll get the same quality of burger or the same quality of work. And then, you know, different worlds, but we come into the world of communicating by by digital platforms like Zoom and Google or Google Meets and all of the different um, way, tools that we can use. And what's fascinating about what those platforms do is, um, I suppose, they offer a footprint, don't they? They bring a whole load of data sitting underneath them about how long we spend in a meeting um, or you know, how many or who we meet with. And so over time, certainly for me as an organizational analyst or somebody who's really interested in the ways we work, there's lots of data there that we could really be playful about. Um, one of my most favorite um, studies, actually, just in that world of meetings and thinking about online um, communication, is a, is a woman called Deborah Tannen. So she, she used to study meetings and she'd literally, she's a, she's a, um, a particular type of, um, they call it a conversational analyst. So she literally would watch and observe meetings and, and notice how long people speak for and how they interrupt each other in the turn-taking that goes on. And those are kind of core infrastructures of every meeting. So I think for it's going to be very interesting to take that kind of study into the world of Zoom if you, know, you could deal with the privacy issues and the content of what's in the meeting and just think about, well, I wonder, do people communicate differently? in these fora. Yeah, and we have a little bit of a, a clue in that, don't we? Uh, it's a slightly trivial version of it, but people with the debate about what books you should put behind yourself, if you appear on camera, other people are saying, okay, you don't have to get very formally dressed for the Zoom meeting, but you still have to look a certain way, depending on what the, the norms are of the team you're involved with or, or the workplace you're in. So already the, the Zoom etiquette is a little bit of what you're, you're kind of talking about. Yeah. And, you know, doesn't that get to the heart of it, really? Like, I think probably the, the main reason why, you know, the office is so important to us is about culture. So these days, in, you know, most working worlds, we've moved a long way from very mechanized uh, types of work. And we're very much interested in kind of making things happen through and with people. And in that case, I suppose the most useful tool in that world is consensus, alignment, idea sharing, and building ways of seeing the world. And that's organizational culture, you know, and, and that emerges from, that's the idea really shared ways of working, shared ways of thinking, shared way, ways of looking at the world. And you, you grow that by spending time together. Um, so I'm really curious, you know, I think, I think without a doubt, we are, you know, we're, we're embarked on a new 
um, phase of our working lives, certainly in the world of what you know we might traditionally call knowledge work or work that can be done with ideas and with people. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see what comes with it. And I think without a doubt, there'll be good things and there'll be things we lose. And can you build that culture if it just is a twice a week Zoom meeting or hangout meeting? Or are we missing something else where you need to be going to the pub or you need to be out on a sports event or you need to be just meeting someone for coffee? You know, those other things, the face-to-face, the human-to-human contact. If you strip that out, is it possibly a danger to developing that culture that, that you're talking about? Yeah, I worry about that. I, it, I think I think it's the thing I hear most from colleagues and, and you know, across all the writing that's been done at the moment is that informal bit. So the stop by somebody's door and have a chat. Um, I pick up, I suppose, read read the vibes of a meeting, but then be able to follow up with people in smaller groups afterwards. And, and we'll find our way, you know, we're humans are we're always creative beings and we will always find new ways to do that but i suppose obviously we want to make sure that we're we're finding good ways that serve what we're trying to achieve so i think we will miss that and i think for me one of the things uh, one of the ways i think about it is that it helps a lot if our relationships are mutual and if i i've used this phrase a few times in my writing but thick relationships in other words there's lots of give and take in those relationships because we have a history we have also quite a nuanced understanding of our each other's strengths and weaknesses and over time you know have learned ways of working with each other and you know we all have different communication styles we all have literally different priorities at different moments you know at this moment we've the whole world happily has adjusted to the idea that you know people have families um, who have to take priority in the in the home at certain times a day so maybe meeting times need to become more fluid or tolerant of interruption and so on so we'll find our ways but I think that that thick relationship So what it feels to me is that at the moment we're really relying on the capital, the social capital that we've built up with each other in our relationships. And that's a very precious commodity. But I think we're trading on that. And so very skilled, um, people who are very skilled with social ways of working, emotionally intelligent, will learn to use that in this world. But over time, if we didn't have the backstop of all the things you said, you know, the the, the coffee, the informal um, sort of stress moment where you're, you know, you, you really need a moment to vent about something and the other person understands, look, this is a moment, this is private between you and me. I'm not going to take this too seriously or, we, you know, those, those sorts of things, they're currency for relationships. And I absolutely believe that we'll find new ways to trade those currencies in a virtual way of working online, but I think they're under pressure. And so one of the one of the very bit ones we talked a lot about at the beginning of all this was introverts versus extroverts. So actually, this is like the rise of the introvert. You know, many introverts are saying, I love this. I actually really like working <laughs> from home. You know, I can kind of contain my meeting time with people into into sort of times that suits me and I can recover from that. I can plan for it. You know, so lots of people, it has suited, but you know, 
like anything, I think the introvert extrovert thing is a little too black and white. And I think probably not only do we all have a blend in us, you know, and sometimes need to be pulled out of ourselves or to have more time around other types of um, energy, um, but also the workplace needs all of it, you know. So, so that is really interesting. But I do think that some people will will thrive more in this environment, just in the exact same way as uh, some people thrive in a meeting or in an office or in a team environment. Yeah. So I mean, the the the, the old terrain of the conventional office played to certain people's strengths. I, I mean, I've had students um, pull me aside over the years and said, you know. I don't particularly like speaking in public. So when we have a tutorial or even in a lecture, you know, that doesn't necessarily suit me. It may suit others who are very much quick to come forward. So that office we've had for decades, centuries, really played to some people's strengths, but didn't play to others. So it's going to be really interesting to see, does that kind of get mixed up now? Yeah, I think it is. You know, in the end, I would always be saying that probably the most important thing any of us can do is just be curious about ourselves and other people be curious about relationships so um yeah i i think to observe what's suiting you and what's not suiting you about this way of work and particularly to be attentive to others in your team and just try and meet them in it you know it's 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 not going it's it's a particularly not an easy environment for people who are less self-starter or who maybe need you know the encouragement of others to uh get confident about their ideas and so on so in other words it's going to rely a lot on that ability to reach out to make an appointment with somebody to have a discussion rather than wait for the opportunity to emerge yeah well i think what is intriguing to me is the demarcation that you used to have between the home the domestic space and the workplace has kind of got very blurry and will probably blur even further so the conventional model was you got up in your house you got dressed into a certain, you know, set of clothes that were seen as socially acceptable. You jumped on your public transport or car and you got into your office and you became a different person and you left the domestic space back behind and you did your day's work and then you went back to that space and there were very clean breaks between the two. Now the model is somebody feeds the children at lunchtime, jumps on a meeting, does something else family oriented in the afternoon, back into work. Maybe they go beyond the traditional 5.30, 6 o'clock and they mix it all up throughout the day. The two are going forward and backward. So it's a very dynamic, fluid sort of situation. Uh, I mean, that is different. And that, that is something that we will, over the next few years, be interested in researching and seeing how that sort of, what does it mean, that, that sort of whole breakdown of that demarcation line. Yeah. And it, it, it's absolutely the kernel of it, the boundaries between things. And so boundary service, you know, they keep things contained and they... Um, they they give us, I guess, a time focus, you know, so we're not working all the time or things get progressed in a certain time frame. But on the other hand, you're right. I mean, the other stuff has to fit in. And if we really go back to it, like your original sort of reflection on the workplace and the office and the fetishization of being present, some of it had to do with leaving your home identity at home um, and having a different identity at work some of those um, early images of office work and factory work, it always surprises me. People look quite dressed up, you know, um, more formal um, maybe mm. than even uh, smart casual would be today. And I think, you know, that does something for us. We become a different type of person maybe when we're in work mode. Now maybe we're comfortable with more casual, informal style of relating and it suits a lot of people. 
but actually it's one of it's one of the groups that I'm curious about so so this this is really this moment is really a strong moment um for I think people with families um, who have kids at home and so what's happening is that particularly right now you know while schools are shut also there's much more integration of family and it's much more I suppose we're not hiding um away things and having a certain sort of formal look on things um, and I think that's great for kids. I think they're seeing their parents at work and parents are able to kind of bring their life into um, into the work in a good way too. And, you know, lots of ways that was really difficult. A lot of evidence to say women in particular, but everybody who was a parent, you know, felt at times they had to shut that stuff out because people might question their availability for work, their um uh, reliability and so on so you know we're, we're we're letting in the messiness and i think that's great yeah that's definitely a, a new part i mean the other side of it is the people who would look at a more dystopian view and, and i'm just putting this into the conversation to see see what your own perspective is but is that once you start blurring those two the the, the work piece gradually because we have technology and surveillance and using certain platforms and so on that the work piece will gradually colonize the other piece and that you'll kind of subtly end up being shunted into doing a lot more work outside traditional hours. So those who would say that, 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 you know, your allocation of time is between you and an employer and how you carve that up, that that will get a bit uneven. I mean, do you buy into that at all? Is there a Trojan horse argument to be made at all in, all, in these new arrangements? Yeah, no, it's it's a risk, isn't it? And certainly I'm hearing a lot of people, I'm seeing it myself, talking about working long hours or late hours, early mornings. And, you know, we I suppose we have to recalibrate for the environment we're in. So, you know, a very simple thing might be literally a lot of professional firms literally in the culture of billable hours, literally clock hours. But I don't think clocking hours is very sort of satisfying. Um, what I do think, though, is important is that we're kind of shifting from time served to outputs and what gets done. So seeing, seeing results focus more and less about, I guess, uh, what we might call a presentee culture or, you know, the look of things. Yeah. And in terms of the type of jobs then, Maeve, I know that you've written and researched the whole area of what skills will be in demand, what kind of jobs do people need to prepare for, and I do have a lot of sympathy for graduates of this year and possibly next year as well, coming into, on the outside, at least seems an inauspicious <laughs> labour market conditions. But they do have one advantage over others that they can kind of get their skills in the right order and, and, and make them different. They can craft them a little bit more than those of us who are already out there. So how do you view that whole skills area after this crisis at least alleviate somewhat? Where do you think the, the, the pockets of skills that will be in demand will be? Yeah, isn't isn't it fascinating? I I mean, I'm, there's absolutely lots of opportunity in this for sure. Um, just as we're seeing some things, I guess move moved away from, but it's it's a list that we've been hearing about for it for a good while. Um, but I think it's definitely correct for right now. Big on the list is communication, collaboration, the agility of mindset, a kind of growth mindset, a way of looking at things that says, I can, there's a way into this. I might know how to do it, but I can find out, I can learn, I can crack it, rather than saying, 
I'm stuck. I'm, you know, can't get past this. So that's a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset. I said collaboration. And that, I think that one's going to be very interesting um, because obviously we're, we've been talking earlier about types of tools and Zoom meetings and all of that. And I suppose one of the things we're going to have to get very good at is tuning in to other people. Um, when you work in a strong culture organization, there's a lot of that gets set for you by the rules and norms of the of the place, you know. And I think that's one of the other groups that I'm a little worried about. Not so much for for um, new new emerging graduates or people coming into the labor force for the first time. I think they will have great skills, great digital savvy that they can bring to this. That's going to help a lot. But there is something about the intergenerational piece and how um, the generations talk to each other and how they expect things of each other. And that's going to be a big one for managers to kind of get their head around as well. It already was, to be to be frank. And, you know, there's that whole idea of the, the psychological contracts. Of, I, think, I think more workplaces should choose it because firms spend so much time on HR kind of tying down employment contracts but the truth is that any of us goes into a situation brings a set of expectations and most of the time we don't ask people what their expectations are and this is true of our employees our team members it's true of our partners it's true of our friends you know it's true of all relationships really if we don't if we don't put some voice to it we don't put some words on it and ask people well what what are your expectations we end up really with working off assumptions and uh, generally, you know, unarticulated assumptions get us into trouble and make head us towards disappointment. So lots of times, um, I think the intergenerational risk is that um, things won't be so clear. It seems, oh, everybody's very relaxed and informal here. But maybe, you know what, maybe underlying some of that, there's still quite a lot of hierarchy or assumptions about who speaks first or who's the authority here. And I think that's one to watch. And also one to watch, we'll have to bring our economics friends in here. They would say that at a, we're going from a period of full employment or pretty close to it in Ireland, I'm talking, we're going to a place that's going to have very high unemployment, at least for a period, depending on which uh, Cassandra-like predictions you, you pay attention to. So does that change a lot of things between employers and employee? You know, you often hear people in a recession, you know, I want to keep my job. I have to work harder. I, I pretty much comply with everything that I'm asked to do from my manager or stroke employer because keeping my employment is an absolute priority. And then that sort of relationship loosens up a little bit when the economy is good. So do you, do you think those that economic backdrop will affect the way employees and employers will interface in the next, say, year or two? Absolutely. You know, when it comes down to it, um, I'm always joking with students, please don't quote Maslow's hierarchy of needs because it, I suppose it's the thing, the theory that everybody knows and I almost feel like I need more from you than Maslow. Um, There's a warning for anyone listening. <laughs> it is, yeah, absolutely. But actually, we're, that's exactly where we are. You know, one of the big messages Maslow helps us think about is that when our basic needs aren't secure, then we um, then we regress. We really go back down the pyramid. And what becomes important, regress is probably too harsh a word. We we just have to prioritize our basic survival. So if if our jobs aren't secure, if our income streams aren't secure, then we're under pressure. When we're under pressure, we can't we can't work as well. We can't think as well. And that's really important. 
Now, some people are brilliant at it. And I suppose the gig economy has has been born out of that entrepreneurial skill and the ability to hustle. Um, but, you know, it's, it's kind of exhausting. There's an awful lot of time involved in what seems like relationship management, but it's short. It has to be by definition short term about getting the next gig or securing your next job. And it also puts people under huge pressure, maybe to take more work than they can at certain times when it's coming due. So overall, at an organizational efficiency level, if we're really putting our economics hat on, you know, a gig economy seems smart because it's agile, but the costs, the hidden costs are very high. And I'm fascinated over the last few months to see how much currency ideas like basic income are coming are getting um, that used to be an argument that very much seemed to come from the margins but actually if we can ensure an economy where people are reasonably stable and secure they'll be much more able to think much more agile much more innovative because their basic needs are taken care of yeah and that's turning turning the traditions of this whole area on their head aren't they i mean the the great promise of the american dream was that you know yes you have hiring and firing which has an unpleasant side, but it generates these other dividends, which makes the economy, as you said, very agile. Um, it means employers take on more people. There may be a risk attaching to them. People move between organizations very easily. There's a sort of fluidity to the whole thing. But you're actually talking about turning that around completely and saying, putting a, a kind of a comfort blanket underneath the workforce, that then that allows them to flourish in a different way, right? It's a powerful idea. But, you know, I, like in the end, what we want is we want, I guess, a productive community of, you know, thriving human beings. That That's our best possible. That has to be the goal. Um, what, you know, what else? What else is our purpose? We've really got to um, understand how important our health, our community, our family is. Um, and then sitting outside of that, our environment, you know, so. So yeah, I think we're really pushing into a new a new way of thinking about work and about getting things done and how important the ecosystem around us is. The whole debate about AI and how many jobs are going to be wiped out and how many jobs are going to be transformed, does this COVID crisis connect in with that or are they sort of separate processes that are going on? Yeah, I think they're very connected and I suppose the the idea the the idea of a future of work debate literally I, I, it's so funny because you know it's been going on since the turn of the century there are books on the sociology of work that and i mean the last century you know so <laughs> there are there are you know it's it's been with us the future is always with us as they say but what what ai and everything to do with machine intelligence i suppose brings is on the one hand the promise of automating routinizable work you know and on the other hand infusing all of the things that happen with data that we can think about and learn from and there's tremendous opportunities for doing things better and smarter there and it's why we're seeing all of the big sort of um developments from the internet you know from from you know it's it's where we're seeing i guess all of the new innovations coming from in tech is underlying AI and machine intelligence opportunities and analytics opportunities. Well, this is this is a bit of a reach may for me, right? What I'm going to yeah. say next, but maybe just bear with me, bringing it back to the start yeah. of the podcast. Taylor was trying to measure time and motion. He did all those studies, 
but he didn't have the data. So that was it, was it was imperfect. And maybe that's why he had them all lined up in school-like desks. Now that we have the data, we're going to get the data. I know there's a dark side to that, but if I'm hearing you right, you're saying now that we have the data of what people are doing, what they're spending their time on, that doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing. Yeah, it doesn't. But, you know, with all the caveats about are we asking the right questions um, and are we seeing all of the nuance? And so, you know, that's why we need smart people who really can think about things and who have long and deep relationships uh, with their world of work and the, the specialism that they're working on. So for me, the future is all about building great communities. But the heart of that is they're going to work best if we build them around human-sized needs and keep people at the heart of it. But what about the poor managers um, who are <laughs> tasked with managing all these staff, with the resources, with these new working relationships? I mean, what would you say to them? Well, how are they going to navigate through this period? And should they be fearful of all this change that you've, you've outlined? Oh, isn't it fascinating? It's a fascinating time for managers. And I suppose this has been predicted before you know is this the death of the middle manager um but you started the conversation today talking about supervision and more than ever i think we do want close feedback close relationships in our workplace that are kind of guidance orientated and so the old idea is getting things done through and with people but if i was to think about managers i'd say it's a very important time for managers to become quite flexible and versatile in their style of managing. There is a bit of a swing to autocracy. So, you know, one person making decisions. So there's clarity and, you know, God knows when, when there's lots of uncertainty and lots of turbulent change, we like authority and we like clarity. But, you know, really most of the time, if we really want to make informed decisions, we need everybody's buy-in and input. And we need to make sure that we're tapping into the whole range of resources and knowledge in the organization. So I think managers really will matter more than ever. But what I always have been very um, keen on, there's a wonderful writer called Rosebeth Moss Cantor. She's one of the Harvard professors. She has a great backstory, really, as a, as a, one of the... The, women, the few really strong voices um, in women's voices in management. But she talks about there being three really critical things that a manager has to be able to provide their team, their members, uh, or, you know, their employees. The three lines, there are three lines. One is the supply, one is information, and one is support. Supply is resourcing people, you know, with what they need, uh, if it's if it's the materials, the skills, whatever else it might be to make sure they can do what they they have, what they need to get their job done. Information, I think, is really interesting, though. As a manager, you've got to ensure that you are in the loop so you understand the way the wind is blowing um, so that you can support your team correctly and kind of guide them where they put their energies because there's nothing more dispiriting is there than putting all of your time into a project and you know being nervous about it and pitching it and then actually it gets mothballed and so you need managers who can read the politics and the priorities in the organization and guide you appropriately and that's your job if you're going to be an effective manager and then the last thing is fundamentally lines of support I think all of us, if we're trying to do things that are risky or new, need to know that somebody's got our back. 
And that's your job as a manager. You know, I think increasingly um, that needs to be put in plain language that actually your job is to protect your team, not, not, you know, not in inappropriate ways, but to ensure that they can be risk takers, that they can speak up, that they can bring um, negative news. And because we want to hear the truth um, from our team members and we want to be able to talk freely. So those things are really important. Lines of supply, lines of information and lines of support. Rosebath talks about those as kind of the political informal reality of organizations and the last thing that she says i think it's so smart is that when managers don't have good access to that themselves it becomes very tricky for their team and you know i've experienced it i've seen it often in managers what happens then is the tendency to become very micromanaging yourself to become very tariff orientated and that's not good for anybody so if you find as a manager that you're struggling with those things i think it's really important to look up the chain and work it out be able to kind of trash that out with your own manager because ultimately you want to be able to provide that to your team that's brilliant um, wisdom so taking that and taking our earlier comments are you optimistic or pessimistic about the workplace of the future having reviewed everything we've talked about in this podcast. And I know that's a, a hard thing to be so blunt about, but where do you, where do you lean on that? Oh, it's, a, I mean, ultimately I would always be an optimist because I believe in human creativity and whatever strange, weird control and surveillance we might experience and legitimately fear, we also have incredible capacity to create workarounds, to push back, and ultimately, you know, a thriving society depends on people who can do those things. So I'm optimistic. Brilliant. Well, that's great to hear. There's not much of it around. It is a precious commodity at the moment. Thank you for rounding on that note. And that was Dr. Maeve Houlihan, who is the director of the UCD Lachlan Quinn School of Business. And as you heard throughout the podcast, a leading researcher, authority, writer, lecturer on the whole world of work. And it's been great to have you. Lots of stuff going on in this particular edition of the podcast. Hopefully people will find it both helpful and informative and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Emmett.